I pray that the book of Romans has been an encouragement and help to you. Romans chapter 16. We are in verses 17 through 20. We just went through, and I I don't know what to call Romans 16, 1 through 16, but there's got to be something... We've got to coin that because that is like the hall of common faith or the hall of superheroes of commonality. That's what I'm talking about. These were just normal serving the Lord. And we talk about the hall of faith in what book was that? Hebrews, right? And this is a hall of nobodies. And and if we could coin that and get that out there, I think that would be really good. Verse 17, so he gets through and he gives thanks all these these nobodies, if you will. What most people would call nobodies. I would call servants, supernatural servants of God. That's what they were, really. After thanking them, he now says in verse 17, Now I urge you, brethren... Keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have which you learned from them, for such are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of our own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent of what is evil. What that's saying right there is don't watch the news. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. By the way, that is a huge statement. Covenant theologians, many of them believe that the millennium began at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If that is true, this text is false. And there is no falseness in the text. Therefore, that can't be true. God will soon crush Satan under his feet. What does that mean? By the writing of Romans, it hadn't happened yet. True? I think that's an important truth. And if you're theologically minded, you're like, oh wow, never saw that before. That's cool. Yes, that does bolster what we believe. Regardless, we're not going to get there today. We are going to get to verse 17. And I will tell you this, we we talk about, everybody talks about love, right? Love, 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 love. I will, we're going to talk about love today, but we're going to talk about biblical love. And I will tell you, as we said before, I think it was in passage of chapter 13 or 14-ish, true love hates. But not according to the definition our world uses. True love warns against harm to those whom it loves. It warns. The greatest harm one can do against believers is what? What is the greatest thing that you can be harmed about? 
Great Awakening and during that time frame of our American history. When Mormonism blew up and Jehovah's Witnesses blew up, what were they doing? They were sending out a false gospel. Many, par- uh, Mary, many charismatics believe you aren't saved unless you speak in tongues. That means works salvation. That's a false gospel. It's all false. It's not loving to predicate that and say, oh, you know, it's okay. It's not okay. The least bit is that okay. The gospel is by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, period. Repent and believe. That's what the Bible says. Nothing else added. Unfortunately, in the last three months of studying the dissertation, there's a group of people who believe, yes, it is salvation by grace or faith, but if you say salvation by grace through faith and you don't include occupying, if you don't include redeeming the culture, if you don't include marching with victims, if you don't include the woke movement, if that's not included, well then you have a truncated gospel and it's false. In essence, They have taught. They are teaching right now. If you're not woke, you're not saved. That's a mess up theology. Matter of fact, one guy, the the leader of this group, said very clearly, he said, the church is not to be in the citadel of the building. That is not their place. They're to be out there marching They're going to be marching against the government if it has to be. It can be pacifist. It can be revolutionary. It doesn't matter. That's where our job is. Scripture doesn't talk about that. How many times did Jesus have a banner that says pro-abortion on it? Or pro-life on it? I'm asking. When did He march? No, our job is to love God. And obey Him. Faithfully obey Christ. Amen? That is our job. So, love calls a spade a spade. How many understand that? When it comes to theological matters. Love is ready to forgive sin, but does not condone it, nor does it ignore evil especially within the church. But love also understands that people of the world are expected to sin. We should not be surprised that unsaved people sin. And sin egregiously. That should not surprise us. They don't know the Lord. In essence, sin outside the church is the norm and unfortunately, it's applauded. The only thing we can do for them is to simply serve them, love them, and proclaim Christ to them. It is not for us to sit there and throw bigoted words at them. That's not helpful. Now, did Jesus Himself throw words at people? Yes or no? I, I, I'm seeing this. It's okay, no one else can see you doing this or this, so don't worry about that. Did Jesus call people names, yes or no? Yes, He did. 
vipers, snakes, whitewashed sepulchers. I mean, he was den of thieves. He was very clear about this. But who was he calling them names? Within the religious sect. That never went out of the religious sect. That was within the religious sect. How many understand that? That's a very important distinction. It's extremely important. Christ loved this person right here. He loved me into a relationship with Him by His death, burial, and resurrection. That's the only thing that makes me different than the world. It's God's working in my life. Apart from God's working in my life, I'm just like everybody else, a sinner bound for hell. But now I'm a sinner saved by grace. The only difference is Christ. It, Jesus Christ loved this person and He saved me from my sin. From the power, penalty of sin. We should experience church, but sin inside the church is a total different animal. A true believer hates their sin. And if you don't hate your sin, well then, you better check your salvation. Because they know that it displeases God and because God, it is a heartache to displease Him. Although sin in the sense that it is sin, there are sins that are differentiated and unique and special within the text. How many understand that? I've heard it over and over again, and unfortunately I heard the same thing, and it just, it, 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 it just crushed me. Someone said, well, Tim, you've got to understand. Sex before marriage is no big deal. It's just like any other sin. Now let me ask you, does the sin of lying send you to hell? Yes. Does the sin of murder send you to hell? In that sense, they are similar. Absolutely. Sins are more problem than other sins. There are sins that are different. Now, some of you are, how many of you are, are come from a Catholic background? Okay, now you're thinking, oh no, don't go into that moral sin thing. I'm not. I'm not. We're not discussing that. Amen? I'm not dealing with that. What are we talking about? Well, Steve Wellam, a theologian, correctly articulated. Although all sin before God is serious and deserving of eternal punishment, every sin is deserving of eternal punishment. Scripture distinguishes between degrees of sin. In, in this sense, not all sin is equal in terms of its effect, its consequences, its degree of punishment on the person, others, the church, and society. Chapter 2, verse 10, some would push back against them and say James 2.10, for whosoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point is guilty of all. We would say amen and amen to that. Amen. Here's proof, some insist, that the Bible does not distinguish between greater and lesser sins. 
at least in terms of their damaging effect. All sin is the same. All sin is against God, and He cannot and does not overlook sin. Amen and amen to that. No matter what that sin is. All sin before God, given who God is, deserves and demands eternal punishment. Hence, our need for a Redeemer, right? Yet, Scripture also speaks of degrees of sin depending on the context, the intention, the person committing the sin, and the sin's overall effects. There are many, many issues here. Well, prove it to me. How many want me to prove it to you? You should, because you should have the, the tools to handle this, all right? What do you mean? Well, you can write these down if you would like. John 19.11. John 19.11 says, you would have, this is uh, Jesus when he addressed Pilate at his trial. He says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it be given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Is there a measure of sin in Scripture? Yes. We're not discussing mortal and venial sins. Roman Catholics were wrong on this. All sin has mortality wrapped around its neck. Do you understand that? It's not what we're talking about. Genesis 9.6 says this, Under the Noahic Covenant, which remains in effect until Christ returns, the sin of premeditated murder is mentioned as a sin that demands the death penalty for the perpetrator carried out by the proper governmental officials. Genesis 9.6 Corporal punishment, or not corporal punishment, sorry. Eradication the death penalty is for those who do this. Does that show that there is a greater penalty for some sins on this earth? Yes or no? Distinctions are made between different levels of clean and uncleanness requiring different sacrifices. Leviticus 11-15, through 15, Numbers chapter 15, unintentional and intentional sins were dealt differently. Is there a difference in sins and offerings according to the sin that was committed? Scripture also speaks out of sins that cry out. That God Himself will execute judgment because of humans and government officials that have acted unjustly towards others. You see it in Genesis 4, verse 10. Genesis 18, verse 20. Genesis 19, verse 13. Exodus 3, verses 7 through 10. And Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 14 through 15. Scripture also teaches that there are different degrees of punishment tied to persons' knowledge of God's revelation that are more serious than those who have acted in ignorance and thus demand greater judgment. You know the Word, and you totally went against the Word. That there's, that's a bigger problem than the person that doesn't know is unsaved. How many understand that? Clear. Matthew chapter 11, verse 21 through 24. John chapter 19, verse 11. 
And then we get, and we're going to talk about that one shortly here. But within the church, we also see a distinction between sins worked out in our life together. When it comes to church, what? It's called church. When someone does something wrong, they won't listen to a person if they go one-on-one. They bring it to whom? The church. The church discipline. There are levels that take place depending on what sins they are doing. How many understand that? you've done, if someone confronts you and says, hey, this is a sin, repent. Forgive the person. Repent and forgive. If they won't repent now, they are causing another sin, the sin of non-repentance. You take it to the two people. If they still won't hear, you take it to the church. If you still won't hear, what do you do with them? Anybody know? It's called, religiously, it's called excommunication. How many have ever heard that? What does that mean? You don't eat with them. You don't walk with them. You don't talk with them. You shun them. Let me ask you, did God ever tell us to shun the unbelievers? No. But He did tell us to shun those who will not listen and are church disciplined. How many get this? are different levels. And when we're, it's within the church, the sin is magnified when it's not repented of. Now, sin happens to all of us. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about unrepentant sin. That's what I'm talking about. One last issue needs to be mentioned. The serious nature of the unpardonable sin. If there is, such, is there such a thing as an unpardonable sin? Okay, some people say yes, some people say no. It was never named that. But let me ask you, is attributing the works of Satan or of the works of the Holy Spirit to Satan unpardonable? Are they damned to hell? Absolutely. Absolutely. The problem is the Roman Catholic Church termed that unpardonable sin something different. I'm talking about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Matthew, right? Matthew chapter 13, I believe it is. John 19.11 says this, When he addressed Pilate, therefore he delivered unto you the greater sin. Free immorality, Proverbs, uh, I don't have the right address on that one. I have too many verses. But the text says, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits, is. this is 1 Corinthians 6.18 or 17, something like that. Every other sin that a man commits is outside his body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Does that tell you there's a different effect of the sin of immorality compared to others? Yes or no? Traditionally, tradition has always talked about degrees of sin. Yet in Roman theology, the mortal venial distinction is used in ways that go beyond simply talking about degrees of sin. So we're not dealing with that. 16 says, there are six things which the Lord sins, which the Lord hates. Yea, seven are an abomination. Even in God's eyes, is there a degree there? Yes or no? Absolutely. Okay. Have I established the fact clearly that there are degrees of sin. Yes or no? Doesn't mean that the least sin will send you to hell. It will. Not talking about that. 
I'm talking about what's the punishment, what's the effects of it. There are degrees. Now, it is clear certain sins affects differently than others. It is no different with the verse at hand in Romans chapter 16. This will be much like the woman caught in adultery. Do you remember the woman that was caught in adultery? Matter of fact, the Pharisees, you know, these Pharisee guys, they, <laughs> they got something wrong with them. About this adulterous woman, I think they're a bunch of perverts, to be honest with you. Do you know what they say about the adulterous woman that they bring to Jesus? We caught this lady in the act. Were you waiting at her door, waiting until they go inside and then open it? You pervert? Seriously! What a pervert! Jesus doesn't use those words. But this woman, they bring her, dragging her along like we're some great people. <laughs> we caught him. Now we, can, now we can mess with Jesus' mind and try to trick him. Look at this. We caught her in the act. Literally, I can't tell you that this happened, but I bet you there was giggling going on behind the guy talking. Because of their nonsensical, arrogant, pompous attitude. Just... So what does Jesus do? Do you remember what he did? He ignored them. <laughs> he started playing like extra sketch in the sand. Literally. He did. Do you th how do you think that went well with the Pharisees that were trying to trick him? Listen to me, Jesus. They asked him again and told him again. Jesus still was doing the etch -a sketch thing. Then he says, What? If you are so, he doesn't, I'm not going to quote it perfectly. You that are perfect and without sin, you throw the first stone. By the way, the way it's written there, there are some commentators believe that when he was doing the etch a sketch thing, he picked up a stone and threw it at him. Say, You throw at her, you that don't have sin, you throw it at her. What did they do? They bowed their head and walked away in humiliation. Why? They knew they were guilty of sin. See, let me ask you, did God deal kind of harshly with them? <laughs> maybe, maybe not. But on John 4, we have the Samaritan woman. What did Jesus say to the Miss Samaritan woman? And by the way, what do you say to the woman that was caught in adultery? Go and sin no more. Not a name was said. He dealt kindly with her. The Samaritan woman had five men married and he's living with one that he's not married with. Christianity today? Right? What did Jesus do? Go and sin no more. Didn't get mad. He expected it from them, right? What about Zacchaeus? You lying piece of dung. Is that what he said? No. 
hey, I'm coming to your house, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus comes out, all that I stole from people, I'm going to give back. He sounded just like Jesus. Why? His heart was changed. To be a tax collector? No. He said, be a good tax collector. Do it right. Do it biblically. He called people. So he dealt with these. I mean, did the people like the tax collectors? Do you like the tax collectors? <laughs> Jesus dealt with these people. Were these bad sins? Married to five or married to many men and, and living with one that isn't their husband? I mean, is that does that sound wicked in our minds? Use for that, right? Jesus didn't do that. He 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 kindly expressed basically, you need the Lord. To all of these. But that's not how he handled the Pharisees. He probably did throw a stone. I can't verify that. But he could have. Some people believe he did. But then he calls them a den of thieves. Oh, that's quite gentle and kind of you. He called them whitewashed sepulchers. Read... Okay, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 23 and we're going to see what, how Jesus did deal with these types of guys. Matthew chapter 23. <clears throat> then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to the disciples saying, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. By the way, that was probably a slam. We don't understand. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. <laughs> now there is a big slam. Are you following? They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. They themselves are unwilling to move them from which much has... So here's the deal. Just think about this. Do we have sin within this church? Do you have sin within your life? Every day probably. Yes or no? Arrogant and pompous about it and trying to fix everybody else and not deal with your own. Many times we are. We're Karens that way. Fix everybody else's problem, but you're good to go. Jesus right now is standing before them in the, in the temple and saying, this is what they say. This is what they do. He wide open Shows their sin. How do you think that's going to go with these arrogant Pharisees? Not so good. He goes on. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogue and respectful greetings in the market. They love all that they are given as, as some great high potentate, some pope dude, whatever you want to call him. I call him wrong, but anyways... Verse 8, but do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father. Don't do this. Don't bow down to them. Is that what he's saying? For one is your father, he is in heaven. In other words, you're treating them like God and they're Satan. That's one way of saying it. But the greatest among you shall be servants. 
They want greatness. They don't understand that greatness isn't what they're getting and that's not what they're trying. They're clamoring for, for popularity and respect and honor. Then serve one another. Well, is it not? Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Okay, so he's saying here, these guys will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. But woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, what? Hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, because you devour widows' houses. And for pre- he is literally fleshing out their sins in front of the whole community that are in the temple. Their lies. Woe to you, scribes, 51 or 15. Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on the sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice the son of hell as yourself. Ooh. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools! And blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering and the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar, swears by both the altar and the, everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by both by the throne of God and by Him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrite, for your tithe, mint, and dill, and cumin have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. In other words, love and serve others. Get off your high horse. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting others. You blind guides who strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. Oh, okay, have I done enough? Do you get the idea of what's going on? Jesus slams these guys. Why? He slams them. Because they know the truth, they have the truth, and they purposely teach against it and live against it. They are false teachers. And they deserve a more robust correction than simply sinners. How many understand that? What's going on here? And he did it over and over again. Matthew chapter 21, we just read 23. Matthew 21, you are making this a den of robbers. In John chapter 2 and in other passages, Jesus Christ threw over the, men, the, the merchants in the temple. Why? Because they were making money off of God. It's this idea of people who know the truth and teach against it. God says, there's a, in essence, there's a higher flame of hell for you. Because you know the truth and you don't preach it. Instead, you do the opposite. 
He hates them. This is a perfect example. It's found in Mark chapter 1. A leper runs up to Jesus begging for healing. Jesus was indignant. What does that mean? No one else cared. Jesus did. And He said, be healed. Now, did He get in trouble for that? How could you do that? The Sabbath says this. How could you do that? You can't be God. You must be Satan. Let me ask you. Are you going to save someone falling up, trying to commit suicide off of a bridge while you're going to church? And you're saying, yeah, church more important. I've got to be there. That guy dies, he dies. Would anybody ever do that? What kind of a person would do that? The one that's serving himself. The one that's focused on himself. That's exactly what this text is talking about. Behind Jesus' anger moments was a hypocrisy of the religious elites. In essence, the times that Jesus elevated to anger, it was against the religious. It was not the harlot, but the Pharisee. It was not the businessman, but the temple being ripped up, being, being a place of ripping people off. When Jesus was questioned about helping the weak on Sabbath, he went after the clergies embracing the letter of the law and not the understanding of what the point is about the law, the spirit of it. In other words, we're going to follow the letter of the law and, and the person that is mutilated be damned. Who cares? Jesus wept at the unbelief of the people He discipled for three years. He did not angrily malign those outside the citadel. He was angry with those within the citadel. Why? They knew better and were hypocritical to throw the heathen under the bus to make themselves look good. That mantra is exactly what is explained in our text. There are false teachers within the church. Folks, there are false teachers amongst the church. And what does it say we need to do? Keep your eye on those who cause dissension. What does it mean, keep your eye on? This is so important. Man, we are so out of time. Keep your eye on. This does not mean you become the church cop. How many understand that? This does not mean you become the... There is no such thing as the church cop. And by the way, I feel very well... Here's the deal. For sometimes it's hard for me to preach on things. Because... Let me ask you, let me tell you this. When, when there's sin in the church that's very obvious and very open and everybody knows it, if I were to preach on that specifically, would I be called, well, you're just trying to fix the problem here and now, and you're going after me. Is that true? Absolutely. I don't have kids, apart from Colton, I have no kids in high school anymore, so none of the, I, you can't sit there and say, you're picking on me. I'm just being vague with all this. Do you understand? Please, <laughs> here's the deal. This is not personal with me. Now, there is no such thing as a church cop. That's not what this is talking about. We are not Karens looking for problems. There is no such thing. 
Now, children must not run and slam doors in the building for what reason? <laughs> the safety of them and the elderly and for worshipful sanctuary and we can help make it that way. How many understand that? Not talking about that. That's not what the text is talking about. There are those people who believe that they are the ones to correct someone else's children because they see them not singing or texting or, or writing notes or something like that. Oh, whoop, I got I to I gotta deal with them. How many understand that? I got I to fix them. I will tell you, I have texted in church. I've not some sung songs. And I probably have been distracted in a service. That's not what's being talked about in this text either. The person that wants to get everybody else in trouble by making sure they're worshiping right the way you think they are, should be. Let me ask you, why are you looking around at everybody else and not focus on worshiping God yourself? Furthermore, if there's a distracted member, remember, you are not the parent and therefore you should tell the parent. They know their child better than anyone will and they are their responsibility. You have no jurisdiction in that. That's not being discussed either. What is being discussed, MacArthur says it this way, Paul is not talking about what today is often referred to as a witch hunt, an effort that is determined to find fault, whether there is one or not, nor is it talking about legalistic, which I just explained, by the way. That, what I just explained, is legalistic to a T. Nor is he talking about legalistic and often mean-spirited and unliving, unloving litmus tests for an orthodoxy that is more rigid than Scripture. What is being discussed is disagreement and as a result demeaning people for the intent of lording over other people. There can be times in a church when someone disagrees with leadership and the doctrines of the church. Why? There will be times. Why? They've learned from someone differently. They have an honest disagreement that this is what they believe and this is what you believe and we can have that disagreement and we can discuss that but we come to the text and look at what it says. Standing to those who have a different eschatological view than we do. True? The Bible doesn't give us exact verse and exact thing that says this is what's going to happen. It is somewhat vague and it's hard to understand and there are different people having different views of how they view it. And that's okay. There's no different in the Gospel. None. Ask it, or ecclesiology, maybe there's some difference. But there, these things are black and white. There are those that they have a nefarious motive and try to push their way. Believe it or not, I don't know if you know this, believe it or not, I literally had somebody that did not like me one, one iota went to the whole church and told them that Pastor Graf is sympathetic 
and is preaching the free grace movement. The exact opposite. What did he do? Why did he do that? Obviously, he wasn't listening. But secondly, there's a motive behind that. Now, praise the Lord, they're no longer here. I, I'm, I'm, a, amen. The reality is, there are people that have nefarious motives within churches. They want to be the top dog. When someone comes in and says, hey, I've been here a year, can I be this? No, you can't. No. Why? Is that, do you come to a church just to rule it? That's not... Listen, deacons... Labels don't matter. If you're bent out of shape because you're not a deacon and you're just waiting to be a deacon to do deacon things, then you're never going to be a deacon. Did you follow that? A deacon simply serves, and every single person here can serve other people. Amen? It's those people that do that over. That's their whole thing. They come in and this is done, this is done. They're going to be the deacon because everybody knows that's what they do. Sometimes they simply do not understand theology. And here's the problem, but they can argue really well. By the way, this is the new problem. The new, I would call it the new pandemic of Christianity today. They know how to argue well. They've got the tongue. They've watched enough YouTube videos. They can argue it. They have no idea what they're talking about. How many understand I will tell you this, text is king, and we are simply to read, study, and apply Scripture. to do? There are some that hold to tradition, hold to what they have been taught, what they simply want to do. If they don't get their way, they dissent and cause a rift to the unity God has given His body. I praise the Lord this text came up now, because I don't know of one going on. Ha! Whew, that's good. <laughs> right? Dissension. What is this word? Dissension is the state of being factious. Opposition. It comes up in Romans 16.70. It comes in 1 Corinthians 3.3. It comes in Galatians 5, which is just... I mean, this, this, this word dissension is wickedness. Dissension is in a list of words like idolatry. Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissension, there it is, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and such the like. Galatians 5.20 is what an unsaved person looks like. 1 Corinthians 3.3, For you are still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like other men? For one says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, and you are not mere... I'm Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? What Servants through which you believed, even as the Lord gave you opportunity to each one, I planted Apollos water. It's God that gives the increase. I'm tired of, well, well uh, this guy says it that way. I could care less. What does the text say? 
Listen, there are tens of thousands of people flooding an auditorium in Texas because the guy has white, shiny teeth and never tells them they have sin in their life and that you don't need to repent and to believe to be saved. Matter of fact, we don't even talk about God to the Muslims because that would offend them. There's a time to be angry. That's it. Why? Because that's not what the text says. That man, by the way, there's a worse hell for him. All that is is motivation speaker with funny looking teeth. What does dissension look like? We are not talking about minor issues, we're not talking about debatable issues. What do we do with these people? Well, here's what they did in the medieval days. When the Sturt Church... Try it again. When the Sturt... I did it again. When the church state came into existence, here's how they dealt with dissension. Oh, you baptized by immersion? There's the guillotine. If, they, if you disagreed with the church, they'd just simply kill you. Or they'd put you on a rack. Okay, say, Pastor, that might be helpful for you. Yeah, it might be. <laughs> but regardless, they would kill people in this way. They would kill them with the sword. They would burn them at the stake. They would drown them. They would put them on the rack. The Reformation did, no, did not do much better. They too would kill people who would disagree with their biblical positions. Finally, freedom of religion was eventually realized and people are not killed because they believe differently. But how are they treated and what, what, what way do we defend Orthodox with people with whom we disagree? Text, 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 Bible, 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 Scripture, 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 period. Did you get all that? That's a lot to remember. All disagreements must be brought to the only authority that has absolutely relevant to the issue. That the church, Christian life, and all life, Scripture is the only authority. Why? Listen, folks. Who or what is the focus of attention of every true believer? Who is the focus of our affections of every single believer? God, right? God is the affection. God, right? We hear from His Word. We hear from Him in His Word. Our affections are God. Are they God or are they self? The person that loves to cause dissension and loves to get his way is focused. His God is self. Not God Almighty. The dissenter the, okay, the arguments used must bring the b- debate back to God and His Word. The dissenter has a motive. Matthew 18, church discipline must be enacted, enacted. And I believe that it is assumed Matthew 18 is done in this passage of Scripture. Because now they're saying, turn away from Him, get away from Him, hate, I mean, just get Him out of here. Here's the deal. It has to start with church discipline. 
I've said this before because it's new on my mind. One of the leaders of a church, not even a leader of a church, he, he, he led a, a, uh, the Christian school of the church. And he hated the church. So you got a church, and you have a Christian school, and the principal hates everything the church is doing. I don't know how that works, but that's what's going on. They had no pastor, so he kind of was the guy that could bully his way anywhere he wanted to. They hired a pastor. They told the pastor, one of the first things he did is went to the principal and said, listen, I'm leader here. Here's what you need to be doing because you are paid by the church. You are a part of the church. This is what we expect. The, guy, the pastor was a retired guy that was like 70 years old. So it's not like he was a new kid or anything. The principal stood up, grabbed the piece of paper, ripped it in front of his face, and left. What should be done? If he's part of the church, what has to be done? Church discipline. He already went one-on-one. -on -one. That didn't go well. The next job is to go two-on-two. But here's the reply. The head pastor says, we don't do church discipline with this because we just want him out of here. Let me ask you, is that biblical? Is it practical? Maybe, does it work better for him? Church discipline should never be dismissed. Where in Scripture does say just let him because we don't want him back here? That's ridiculous. This has to be predicated on church discipline, what we're talking about. So, reality. If the dissenter will not listen and humbly look at the text that is applicable, they have a motive problem, and you cannot fix that. Therefore, what does the text say? We are to, the text says, turn away from them. That means reject what they teach. Protect the fellow believers. If they refuse orthodoxy, they must be rejected. Jesus made it abundantly clear when He said, you hypocrites, you den of thieves, you whitewashed sepulcher, these are not the guys you want to listen to. How many times did He call them a hypocrite in one chapter? Don't listen to these guys. They're wrong. They're wicked. And Christ literally went after them what we would call hard, right? Hard. Be on guard for yourself and for all the flock. Among them, the Bible says, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. There are wolves out there. There is Satan out there roaring like a lion, eager to devour the church. And as the church stands up and lovingly says, you, my friend, are out of here and don't ever come back again and shove them and sh shun them because they are theologically preaching the wrong message. That is loving. Why was that loving? Because there are a hundred people here that don't need to hear that nonsense. 
You are to protect the Word of God, which says the exact opposite. That's loving. Sometimes you have to choose between what you're going to love, quote-unquote. Does that make sense? Why do people do this? What is the purpose? The text gives us an answer. Look what it says. It says, such men are slaves. Now, here's the deal. Are, is everybody on this earth a slave? Okay. Now, these, not the slave word, but the word I'm going to use is defined differently on who you talk to. So listen, I'd love to talk to you and we can discuss this. But everybody in the world, most people in the world, they love the term free will. How many understand that? Free will, free will, free will, free will. Listen, can you have free will and be a slave? Think about that. If you're a slave, who are you beholden to? The very term slave means you're beholden to somebody, right? So, are you a slave or are you free? Is that, are they not opposite in a sense, depending on how you define free will? Okay, This all depends on how you define free will. But the point is, freedom and slavery are opposite. The text here says, these men, these men that are causing issues and dissension and things, these are men are slaves. And then he says, not of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what kind of men do we have? In our churches, we have men in this church, they had men that were slaves to sin or the world or Satan. And People, men that were slaves to whom? Christ. That's what's understood in that reading. Do you see that? It's right there. So these men are slaves to Satan, in essence. Not They are not slaves to the Lord Jesus Christ. They are slaves, and then he says what they're slaves to. What are they slaves to? Themselves. Their own appetites. MacArthur says it very well, no matter how seemingly sincere and caring false teachers or preachers may appear to be, they are never genuinely concerned for the cause of Christ or for His church. They're concerned about A number one. They are driven by self-interest and self-gratification, sometimes for fame, sometimes for power, over their followers, always for financial gain, and frequently for all of those reasons. Many of them enjoy <clears throat> pretentious and luxurious lifestyles, and sexual immorality is the rule more than the exception. Let me ask you, in the 1980s, from the 1970s on, there have been a multitude of TV evangelists. Under this thing? Some of them certainly would. <laughs> when you hear a guy speaking eloquently, and that's one of my problems, I, I will be honest with you, I'm kind of a this-is-what-it-is guy. I don't beat around the bush, but these guys eloquently have a, have a golden tongue. How many know what I'm talking about? And they have, a, they have a pool in the shape of a violin and a mansion that's worth millions of dollars. What 
in the world are they? Why do they think they deserve that? Or why do they even do that? Literally, they're not about serving others. I never saw a bus from the hood come over and play in that pool. How would that go? I'm reminded of, and this is a new political thing, so, but you know, you know it also. It's, I'm reminded of a, somebody who sent a bus to Martha's Vineyard. How did that go? It's about themselves. And it's always that way. Many false teachers devote their lives to study of Scripture so that they can distort the Word and twist it to fit their own presuppositions. Even the rare false teachers, they try to please God by their good works rather than by faith in Him and obedience to His Word. By their how. The text says it how too. By their smooth and flattering speech. <laughs> that would never be... <laughs> I would never be accused of that. <laughs> My MO. They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. That was my point earlier. They know how to debate. They got enough YouTube and they can memorize those and, and give you a really good debate, but have no idea what they're talking about. They sound good. <laughs> they look good. I can't even do that. And they market well. And they're genius virtue signalers. Y'all know what that means? They know how to look at the world and they say, hey, look at me, I'm feeding the poor. I'm doing this, I'm doing this. Look at me is the attitude. The problem is, they do not truly know the truth and are not humble enough to recognize that they could be wrong. Big teeth, smiling face, motivational speaker, Joel Olstein is a perfect example of what we're talking about this morning. False apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds." They will be judged. By the way, you say, Where, where'd you get that? That's the Bible. That's not me. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. So the question is, what can be done? Well, the current, cult, the current culture within the church says, love, 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 love. We just need to love them. Matter of fact, I'm going to hear it. I, I know I will hear it. People will be talking, calling me and say, Tim, you can't push those guys, you can't throw those guys under the bus. I will full, throw Joel Olstein under the bus anytime I like. He's wrong. And there are many others like him. But I'm going to hear it. You should love them. And what that means to them is we should put up with them. Or we should compromise with them. That's not love, folks. That's not a love for God. That's a love to be liked by them. To be liked by other people. Our job is to love God. 
And if they're saying something and doing something against God, they need to be nailed about it. That's not love for God, and it's certainly not love for church. In a couple of weeks, we're going to show you a video of a church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It was satanic. Some of you saw it this morning, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Rap, they rap for Jesus, they scream for Jesus, they wear tight leather clothes for Jesus, rapping, dancing, sexual stuff all over the place. I had to edit it because it's too vulgar for church. And the guy comes out and defend, the pastor of the church comes out and defends himself and says, at least there were 269 people saved that day during that nonsense. The problem is people don't even know the gospel. That's not the gospel. That's not love for God and His church. That is love for self and one's current lifestyle. If you love God, you call believers of their false thinking to help them and the church. That's true love. That would be like saying, if you're living next to Highway 169 and you have four children that are under the age of seven and you tell them, you have free will, do as you will, you can play wherever you want. And they're out there playing football and you're applauding them as they get hit by a Mack truck on his way. Did you really love them? Not at all. You wanted them to like you. So you're going to give them whatever they want. You didn't love them. You loved you. And now there is no more kids to love. Love demands that we fight against these types of people like Jesus did. I'm not saying we should call them names, although I probably have. But we must fight against their theology. It's wrong and it's sending people to hell. If you love God, you call out believers over their false thinking to help them and the church. That is true love. Remember, we started this morning by differentiating between how Jesus dealt with the world with the way we deal with false teachers in the church. Remember, He dealt with the religious sect differently, harsh, more harshly than He did simple unbelievers. Well, to be honest with you, we deal with them differently because the world does not have the privilege of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Folks, the world is out there. They don't know the Lord. Why is LGBTQ up through the roof in numbers? They don't know the Lord. It should be expected. Why is it they want to murder people after they're born? They don't know any better. They don't know Lord Jesus Christ. They're all focused on themselves. We, we help them understand biblically what's wrong with that. But when it's somebody in the church trying to dement theology, we get serious and in their face like Paul and Peter did and say, out of here. That's false. By the way, those people outside the church, just remember, you were there too once. They, we were just like that before we were saved. 
We must have passion for them in helping them know and love God as someone did for me and for you. The unsaved are simply being who they are, unsaved and without God. The false teachers are very different. They are actively fighting against God knowingly and arrogantly. We deal with them as Jesus did quite differently. We boldly present Scripture, passionately disagree them face to face, and if they will not listen, we reject them and don't listen to them, and we turn away from them. We are not Jesus, so I'd not encourage you to call them a den of thieves and whitewashed sepulchers and the such, but we must reject them. Amen. That's what this text is all about. So please, please do not let me hear you say all sins are equal. They're not. They are equal in the sense that they're sending you to hell. But they're not equal if they are actively against God and not just living their life as if they are against God. They're actively pushing against the church and against God Himself. That's wickeder sin. And Paul says it's here in Romans. Jesus exemplified it throughout Scripture. Does that make sense? How many understand what I'm talking about? Nobody. This is a big deal. This is an important thing. Unorthodoxy is not tolerated in the church of God. And we need to discipline and get them out and reject them. The Bible says, how do we deal with them? Deal with them. He's talking to Jews when he says this, and I'll leave with this. He's talking to Jews when he says, he says, I want you to deal with you deal with those guys that you kick out of the church, you deal with them as Gentiles and tax collectors. That's how we are to deal with them. Oh, that's harsh. No, that's biblical. For people that actively push against orthodoxy in the church and minds of the church. Amen? We got it? All right, you guys stood for or sat for a long time. I'm so sorry that I, I'm sorry. I hope you're, you're uh, I'm not sorry about the text. Sorry about keeping you on your seat so long. This is important. Before we pray, Mr. Zarin's going to pray. But before we pray, um, my wife and I are leaving again. So we are, I am walk. I'm graduating next Sunday at 6 p.m. Um, and I'm going to ask you this. I'm going to ask you, as of right now, I do have a doctorate degree. But let me tell you what my name is and how I would like to be called. <laughs> or pastor. Whichever one you're comfortable with. I am severely uncomfortable and in some sense offended if you want to call me doctor. Just because... Listen, I am no different than any of you. And I never want to be that way. I am one of you guys. I love you guys. I care for you. And I'm just a common guy that can't speak really eloquently. But hopefully the text is understood. Fair? I'm going to be gone for that Sunday night and then... Uh, We'll be back here the next Sunday. And here's what my plan is.
Many of you aren't here Sunday, in Sunday school. We've been talking about the theology of vocation. And it's a, it's a theology we've totally misunderstood and don't understand and sometimes never heard of. And therefore, why do you think the world is why it is today? It's because we don't have a biblical worldview of the theology of vocation. And we're going to present that next Sunday morning with the video and PowerPoint and all that. So you get an idea, or two, two Sundays, not next Sunday, I'll be gone. So you get an idea of what we're talking about. Because everybody, if everybody understands that every part of their life is sacred, and that we minister in every area of our life, let me ask you, would this world be different if all Christians ministered wherever God put them in this day's society? Absolutely. That is missing. It's not the government's fault that it's like this. We can blame them all they want. It's our fault too. Because we haven't given them the gospel and they haven't rubbed soldiers with an imager of Christ as they should. So they have no other way to think. We want people to think biblically. The only way they can think biblically is to serve and love them. That's what we've been called to do. Mr. Zarin, can you close us in a word of prayer, please? Before we pray, I would just like to take this opportunity to wish all of our mothers a happy Mother's Day. And in remembrance of that, here is a flower in back that my wife has purchased for each one of you. You can pick one of those up on your way out. I would appreciate it. But uh, I personally am very thankful for mothers. Uh, what else can we say? Thank God for that. Let's stand a little bit. Father, thank you again for this time together in the Word of God. Father, thank you for the truth of the Word. Thank you for this, just the power it has in our lives if we will let it work. And Father, we just thank you for this day that we can take this time to remember mothers. Father, we are so thankful for them. Thankful, Father, for godly women. I pray, God, that you would uh, just continue to work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.